Hello. Hi. It's uh, Arthur and... It's Owen. Thank you for letting me say my own name. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for tuning in to At Your Peril. We've got a couple of thanks to do before this episode starts, so we're just going to rattle through them really quickly. We want to say thank you to the Guardian newspaper who made us one of their podcast picks of the week uh, last week at time of recording. That's right, and this week we are podcast pick of the week from the Sunday Post, so um, thank you so much. I mean, it really, really does mean a lot to us. You know, we, we started this two years ago uh, in our bedrooms. Oh, we're still doing it in our bedrooms. But yeah, I mean, <laughs> nothing's changed. <laughs> We've moved room. <laughs> I've moved house. <laughs> You've moved house. So we're in a different room, but we're still in our room. But yeah. no, anyway, thank you so much. And and if uh, you've been listening from the very, very start from a couple of years ago, thank you for sticking with us. Uh, we're so pleased to be giving you all these great stories. And if you're new, hello and welcome to At Your Peril. Um, and uh, we hope you enjoy this next episode, which has uh, some pretty great people in it. Yeah, it's got, it's got an actual movie star in it, Owen. Is it? Is it Samuel Jackson? Finally, it's not. I know. I promised you Samuel L. Jackson in the very first ever preview, didn't I? Yeah. Yeah. No. Sorry, it's not. We ha- we have not yet got Samuel. I'm gonna. I'm gonna switch off now. Uh, don't, because it's better than that. Oh yeah. It's Sophie Cookson. Whoa, Sophie Cookson from off of Kingsman, Red Joan. She's like Fantastic. big time. Yeah, great stuff. Well, and then we've also got Ashraf Edgebear from RuPaul's Drag Race, uh, which UK. is really cool. Drag Race UK. He's the Brit Crew. He's the Brit crew. He is the only one that I look at. <laughs> and then we've got um, French film and television superstar Josephine Berry in this episode as well. Mm-hmm. And a couple of other, other idiots that might just have just popped ourselves in because we write the podcast. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you. That's enough waffle, I think. Thank you yeah. so much. Enjoy the episode and we'll do a quick goodbye at the end. Cheers. Yeah, we'll see you at the end. <laughs> Hello, dearest listener. You have tuned in to At Your Peril by Arthur McBain and Owen Jenkins. Before we begin, a parish notice. A warning. What you are about to hear may terrify and horrify you to the very core of your being. It may also involve content unsuitable for children, those with a nervous disposition, or wimps. If you must, turn off your receiver No? In that case, we shall begin at your peril. I can feel it. It's like I've read it somewhere. And that's why I'm writing it all down. I'm making records because I know this isn't the first time I've seen the box. Out of the abyss we dragged it up. Through 30,000 feet of bitter cold Pacific. I was still in shock. What on earth was it? We hauled. Pressure working against us, it was heavy. An estimated four or five tons. The fact that the sub even managed to get it off the trench floor was a miracle in itself. And with all that weight of ocean above it, every fathom was an achievement for subaquatic engineering. The currents themselves seemed as though they were trying to stop our efforts and drag it back down below into the pitch black. But we powered on. Looking back now, I wish we had listened to those currents. 
I wish we had released the chains and let that damn thing sink back down into the depths, never to be seen again. Hindsight is 2020, and that thing should never have been allowed on our boat. But curiosity spurred us on. I've come to believe that almost every awful thing ever to happen was at first spurred on by curiosity. And there we were. In the name of science, ascending, propellers on max, millions of gallons of salt water roaring past us. We were excited. I can't deny it, but how foolish we were. We were bursting with anticipation of all the things we expected to find on the bed of the trench. That thing wasn't it. It was so out of place. So alien in an already alien world. I can't speak for the rest of the crew, but the feeling I was experiencing was similar to how I imagined Victorian explorers must have felt conquering new summits or discovering Amazonian tribes. And somehow, it was familiar. Only now, I think back and I wish only one thing. That I'd never been on that godforsaken crew. I rue that day. We'd been performing a series of dives into the Mariana Trench off the coast of Japan, the deepest part of any ocean on the planet. It had been a lifelong ambition. Since I can remember, I've dreamed of sinking slowly into that most inhospitable and mysterious place. It's true that humanity knows more about the stars than the bottom of the ocean. So when children at school would think of being astronauts, I'd scoff and think of the world beneath the waves. Inspired by the old adventure stories, Moby Dick, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, my games would always involve water. The murky depths, the undiscovered creatures, the shimmer of sunlight rippling above me. I was obsessed. For hours, I'd disappear into make-believe, imagining myself fitted with an oxygen tank and mask. During school swimming lessons, I'd dive to the bottom, release all of the air out of my lungs, and sit, perfectly balanced on the floor of the pool. Equilibrium peaceful. The sound was different there, loud but smooth, and I'd never hear the lifeguards screaming for me to come up, even until the occasion that I went blue and almost died. I remembered it as though it were yesterday. I'd been playing make-believe, pretending to be a deep-sea diver on a mission. I'd been playing out the moment I found an artefact on the ocean floor. I remember a strange feeling that what was meant to be was always meant to be. I remember just as I was on the verge of drowning. Everything seemed so clear. I finally understood myself. I was eight. My swimming costume was a wetsuit. The stench of chlorine was the submarine fuel. A rubber brick thrown into the pool became a mysterious artifact on the ocean bed. And one day, I'd do it all for real. In the six months leading up to the trip to the Mariana Trench, I had been insufferably excited. Obsessed with maps, charts, drawings, photos. I couldn't believe that I would actually be going down there. 36,037 feet below. Pitch black. An atmospheric pressure of eight tonnes per square inch, a thousand times that of sea level. If Mount Everest were placed into the trench at its deepest point, the summit would still be underwater by over two kilometres. More people have been on the surface of the moon than had been to that most ultimate of seabeds. Before our particular mission, there had been only six other manned descents. Our series of expeditions would account for the next four, meaning our small crew would have visited the very bottom of the ocean more times than anyone else in history. 
the reason for the missions was less thrilling. We were to study plastic waste. Supermarket carrier bags had been found on previous trips, ring pulls, toys, and not to mention the microparticles invisible to the naked eye. This was all the way down at the bottom of the ocean, 36,000 feet down. The ramifications were huge, displaying the extent of man's destruction to the natural world. We were to collect samples to study the decay of plastic in such environments, to try and use the results as evidence of humanity's requirement to stop its cycle of planetary abuse. Did you know, every plastic toothbrush that you've ever used in your entire life still exists, and a few can be found on the floor of the Mariana Trench. The main section of the sub was a three-metre-wide reinforced steel sphere. Spheres being nature's strongest structures, well, it had to be, given that the pressure it needed to withstand was the equivalent of a fully grown African elephant standing tiptoe on your thumb. The sphere was where we would sit, squashed in like sardines, and man the craft. It was our only defence against certain death. If it sprung a leak, the jet of water would be so powerful it would slice a human being in half. Luckily, if that were to happen, we'd all be dead before we had time to worry about it. Making a spaceship is a damn sight easier than making a submarine of this resilience. But that's where I really felt alive. On the edges of possibility, pushing my own life to the precipice. It's in those moments of danger where life feels the most precious. The crew was Cheska, Jamie and me. Cheska was by far the most experienced in the field, having captained her first deep-sea submarine descent at the age of 23. Unheard of in the world of diving. She'd personally discovered over 200 new species of deep-sea critter. She was the captain and in charge of our life support systems. On each dive, we'd spend approximately six hours on the ocean bed, and it was Cheska who'd keep an eye on the oxygen, the temperature, the well-being of all of us, and be the only one with the authority to make any significant decisions. She was direct. In other situations, some might even call it rude. But our lives were in her hands, and that's a lot to carry. And I trusted her to carry it. Then there was Jamie, who considered himself more of a comedian than a professional marine engineer. And if his jokes were anything to go by, I worried considerably for the engineering of the sub. He drove the thing and was in charge of the ballast. He was harmless enough, but I did often have to summon every ounce of professionalism not to jab him in the ribs. There was just something about him that I found disrespectful. The ocean is my church, and Jamie is a heathen heckler. Then me. I was in charge of what's known as interaction. I controlled the external cameras, lights, robotic arms, and sample collection rods for taking sediment up to the surface. We were to launch for Mission 1 from the command ship at 2am, where the sea was set to be at its calmest. We had sailed some 200 miles east of the Mariana Islands, and in the dead of night, we stood on deck, looking at the vehicle that would take us to the limits of human perseverance. It was so much smaller than it had seemed in the workshop, so much more fragile. My heart pounded as the crew bustled this way and that, getting everything ready for the launch. The sea wind bit the tip of my nose, and the slow rocking of the boat amid the pitch-black surroundings made me curl my toes. As the submarine hatch was opened, any nerves I had disappeared, and I focused on the job in hand. One by one, we clambered in, 
It was a well-choreographed and delicate routine that involved avoiding every piece of finely tuned machinery and electric system before wedging ourselves around one another as though we were Tetris blocks. I was last, and before ducking into the sphere, I tapped the outside of the sub and whispered, Let's do this. The command boat crew bolted the hatch shut. That's always a strange moment. Knowing that even if I wanted to get out, I couldn't. Knowing that if everyone on the outside died in a freak accident, we would be trapped in this round steel coffin forever. Um, I'm not claustrophobic, but in moments like this, the dark recesses of my brain are certainly tempted to be. This is control room to sub, do you copy? Came a tinny voice through the comm speaker. We copy. Cheska replied mechanically. Launch commencing. Suddenly, we were weightless, hanging in air by the vessel's crane, rocking, and then a jolt, and then the gentle sway of being on water. The feeling of being in a submarine just after a launch is like none other. You feel suddenly free, no longer on the waves, but in the waves. Suddenly, you're moving as part of the ocean, part of the big blue itself. The submarine at this point is connected to two large balloons, which are buoyant enough to keep it afloat while we perform checks on the computer systems. I test the lights, the arms, and all of the cameras. The only window that we have is two inches wide and so thick that its only use is as a last-ditch backup for knowing if you're on the surface or on the bottom. And then Cheska talks into her walkie-talkie. Checks complete. Release. 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 With that, we hear a loud bang as the electromagnets holding the buoyancy aids are released. And then it begins. The descent. We plummet, no engines on, just free-falling through black nighttime ocean, falling to the bottom of the earth, making our brave pilgrimage to the underworld. I watch the screens. There's nothing to see except sediment flying past us, but to me, it's mesmerizing. Turn the lights off. Cheska tells me. You're wasting energy having them on. There's nothing to see anyway. I reluctantly do as she says. Within minutes, we are at minus 300 feet, the depth of the North Sea, but are headed, quite literally, over a hundred times deeper. It's going to take almost five hours to reach the bottom, so she has a point, but I can't deny that I'm not a little disappointed. In the dark sea, it's my only hope of seeing some wildlife through the screens. With that, I lean back into my cramped seat and close my eyes. I'm off the hook until we reach the bed. In my mind's eye, I picture all of the water flushing past us, the mounting weight of open ocean above us. I imagine the endlessness of it all, the depth yet to go. Nothing between us and the bottom. At times it's comforting, other times not so much. 12,000 feet comes and goes the depth of the Titanic's final resting place, and we aren't even halfway there yet. Then, suddenly I hear a muffled voice. Lee, it says. stop messing. I open my eyes. Huh? I say. Cheska looks up from her screen. What? Did one of you just say something? I ask, craning my neck around to Jamie, who sniggers. <laughs> Not me, dude. There's just something about him that I don't trust. Someone just said, Lee, stop messing, I say, sure of what I've heard. You're imagining things. It's easy to hear things in silence. Cheska says. Yeah, you go back to sleep. We'll wake you when we arrive. I close my eyes again and try to stay calm. Something isn't right. And all of a sudden, I'm trying to quash panic. 
I am powerless, and still we sink. Further and further, deeper and deeper. At some point, I think I fall asleep. Well, I must have fallen asleep because I am awoken with Jamie tickling me on the ear. I crane my neck and look at him. You were snoring. He shrugs and gets back to tapping on his screen. I bite my tongue and look at the depth. 32,000 feet. We're almost there. How long was I sleeping, I ask, trying as best as I could to stretch out the muscles in my legs. 20,000 feet. You can turn the lights on now. I do so. A flicker of sound and suddenly the screens flare into life. Nothing but darkness and sediment. We are now lower than any animal can survive, apart from bacteria. If bacteria can survive under these conditions at one degree centigrade with this pressure and in this darkness, it can survive on other planets. Jupiter's moons, Europa, Io, Ganymede. Then on my screen, I see a fuzzy pale mass rising towards us. The bottom, I nod at the others. Propellers on. Jamie grunts and the sub is filled with the sound of motors whirring away, slowing our descent. If we hit the bottom too hard, it could cause us irreparable damage and render us stuck here forever, preserved in our steel cocoon. There's no life raft. There's no backup sub. There is no rescue. Jamie looks tense. We all are, I suppose. His brow furrows, and at the moments when he is concentrating particularly hard, he sticks his tongue out. Success. With a soft bump, we land on the ocean bed. 36,000 feet of icy ocean water above our heads. The sun will be rising at the surface, but the chances of any light reaching us down here is nil. Pale sediment explodes up around us, momentarily rendering my cameras useless, but after a few minutes, once it's all settled, my mouth drops open. This is it. The deepest point on planet Earth. Flatness expands for as far as my cameras can see. Stillness. Silence. This is a wasteland. A desert. We begin moving the submarine forwards, taking sediment samples, looking for anything of note. I feel... I feel as though the world above doesn't exist. Never existed. I feel as though... I can't remember what life was like on land. It's mesmeric down here, in the darkness. We are the only sentient beings for 10,000 feet, at least. The simplicity of this fact is at once beautiful and terrifying. My mind ponders this What's that? Jamie shrieks over my shoulder. What? what? On the screen, did you not see that? Point, uh, point the camera back where you had it. I do so. What? Did you not see that? Did, did, did you not see... What? Cheska pulls an assertive tone. Someone! Cheska and I both laugh. <laughs> You're seeing things. He's not seeing things. He's having us for a ride. Are you not wise to this yet, I say? I'm not. I swear, I just saw someone right over there. Or, or at least... Look, guys, honestly, I'm... It looks like a figure standing straight, like looking directly at us. Well, there's no one there now. And if there were, they'd have been squashed to the size of a pint glass. Jamie let out a long and protracted breath. Well, that gave me the creeps. I burst. I couldn't help it. Look, I said, you and I are not going to be friends on the other side of this if you carry on. We're here to work. Jamie fell silent. 
I could hear him breathing heavily. I shook my head, focused on the screen, and then I saw it too. I couldn't speak. My temples throbbed. In the distance, right where the pitch darkness met the edge of my floodlight, was... was a shape. I squinted at the screen. It did indeed look like a person. Look, I said, pointing a feeble finger at the screen. Jamie, is that what you saw? Oh my god. What is it? Head towards What? It. Absolutely not. Jamie, there's nothing done. There here. fucking is. There's that. I am the captain of this crew. When I give orders, you do it. I won't ask again. Besides, it's probably just a piece of wreckage. Or an artwork by Anthony Gormley, I say. Niche. Within moments, the propellers are roaring us towards the shape. As we move, all three sets of eyes are pinned to my screen. With every passing meter, the shape gets brighter and brighter and less and less like a figure. Before long, we are staring at the object of our interest. A box, rectangular, upright, some 15 feet tall. It looks as though it was constructed from a single piece of steel. The joins and edges were seamless. Not a rivet or a bolt, and what's more, not a single scratch or piece of rust. It reflects the headlights as though it had been recently polished. Whatever it is, it's not been here long. Do you reckon it's fallen off a tanker? Can't have, I replied. This isn't a shipping route. Let's take a look around it. Jamie promptly manoeuvred the craft around the box. Crew to control room, do you read me? Control to crew, we read you loud and clear. Cheska went on to tell the control room about what we'd found. I studied the screen carefully, wondering what was inside the box. It couldn't be full of air. If it was, there's no way a rectangular structure could withstand such pressure. I took a deep breath in and moved the floodlights over to the shiny surface. It looked as though it had just left the workshop floor. Clean lines, sparkling polish. Could it have fallen from the command boat? I muttered. Do either of you recognize it from the boat? Then Cheska radioed. Are you missing anything from the boat? Could it have fallen in? Then she looked at us. Stupid question. We're gonna look like idiots. I know every piece of kit on that vessel and this isn't anything I've seen before. No, over. As the sub turned the final corner of the 360 inspection of the object, the three of us fell into a stunned silence. A window? Is that... Is that a window? An hour later, we had attached the box to the sub. A difficult procedure, but done with determination, which all three of us shared. An excitement. The air in our little sub was electric. With the help of our emergency buoyancy and propellers, which Jamie was certain would withstand, we dragged it up, out of the abyss. Through 30,000 feet of bitter, cold Pacific. I was still in shock. What on earth was it? We hauled, pressure working against us. It was heavy, an estimated four or five tons. The fact that the sub even managed to get it off the trench floor was a miracle in itself. And with all that weight of ocean above it, every fathom was an achievement for subaquatic engineering. The currents themselves seemed as though they were trying to stop our efforts and drag it back down into the pitch black. But we powered on. Those few hours, rising to the surface with our discovery, I feel like I can remember every second of it. The sand of the ocean, the look on Jamie and Cheska's faces. Please, stop messing. Again, I heard the muffled voice. It sounded as though someone was speaking underwater. I gritted my teeth and focused on our ascent. 
determining that hallucinating sounds must be a strange symptom of claustrophobia. We got to the surface, were hauled on board the command boat, heard the hatch unlock, felt the cold sea breeze on my face. I stumbled onto deck and saw the box for the first time with my own eyes. It was mesmerising. days later that the event happened. We had shipped the thing back to a small warehouse in San Roque, on the northern Mariana Islands, and there it stood. Tall, stoic, mysterious like a space-age totem pole, or giant's coffin. No entry points had been found, no sign of any screws or bolts. It appeared as one single piece of steel, even up to the edges of the window, which ran the entire length of one side and appeared to just turn into glass without as much as a join. The glass itself was pristine. Not any sign of warping from being under such immense pressure for who knows how long. And what was on the other side of the window? Well, nothing. The box was empty. Just a box. An empty box. The message had been sent out to the scientific community. All oceanographers and divers, marine scientists and engineers knew about it. Though we were yet to release a photo as we didn't want any press sniffing around. Didn't want the tabloids sensationalising the mystery. It was sure to be something easily explained away. Occam's razor. The most obvious explanation is most likely the right one. The problem was, we didn't know what the most obvious explanation actually was. That it had fallen off a boat, yes, but we had records of every single vessel big enough to carry such a thing that had passed the vicinity, and none claimed ownership. Aliens. The most obvious explanation. No human could produce something this smooth, apart from Lionel Richie. I knew he was fooling around, but by this point I feared I was going insane enough to agree with him. And then, if things weren't strange enough, the unimaginable happened. I was writing my diary in an office in the warehouse and contemplating how the next three dives might be cancelled in favour of focusing efforts on the box. All staff had left the building and I was completely alone in the stillness of the night. I liked it here. The industrial dehumidifiers gave a reprieve from the sweltering night. Suddenly, I became aware of a sound coming from the warehouse floor next door. I stopped writing and tilt my ear in the direction of the open door. There's a voice but it's unclear. Sounds like a voice you'd hear underwater. It's only when I look back now that I realise that it's the exact same voice I heard from inside the sub, thousands of kilometres below the ocean. Lee, stop messing. I swear it. Even now, as I think back, I barely believe myself, but that's what I heard, echoing into the room. Lee, stop messing. I stand up, put my pen down softly and try not to make a noise. I tiptoe towards the door and peer into the warehouse. Stop messing. Hello? Hello? My voice echoes around the room. Is there anyone there? Of course there wasn't. The room was empty, save for that thing. 
that box in the centre. I take a step towards it, feeling drawn to the mysterious object. It felt like it was pulsating, a black hole drawing me into its centre. And then the voice again, this time more panicked. Lee, stop messing. Now I was certain it was coming from the box. I crossed the room and faced the artifact's window side. To my complete horror, the box was no longer empty. There was someone inside. Jamie. Jamie was playing a trick on me. Surely, the once flawlessly flat glass was now rippling like the surface of a pool, obscuring a figure within, light sparkling around it. They were holding their arms out towards me. Skin, almost blue. Lee, come on now. The voice was closer, more clear, precise. But the image was fading, blurred, becoming more and more like an abstract shape. Lee, come on now. I recognised the voice. It was someone familiar, someone I knew well, but I couldn't put my finger on it. Just as it was starting to dawn on me who the voice belonged to, the figure disappeared. And once again, the warehouse was dark, and silent, apart from the hum of the air conditioning units. I fell to my knees, doubting my own sanity. I wasn't breathing. I was forgetting to breathe. (sighs) Is this what a delusional episode feels like? I can swear that it was real. I saw what I saw and I heard what I heard as though it was reality trying to rip through a dream. It was so real that it made real life seem more imagined than the vision itself as though reality was just a childlike make-believe and the figure was trying to pull me back to wherever it came from. I crawled forward and touched the box. It was cold. Freezing. The tip of my finger froze to it instantly. I pulled back in shock, ripping off the skin from the tip of my finger. For that moment that I was attached to the box, I had felt a slight vibration. I felt a pang in my heart. Was it anxiety? Or something deeper? Something sadder? Was I losing my mind? I let go, turned away. But as I walked... Lee, I mean it. I gasped for breath. My hands shook, felt cold, freezing cold. I looked down and to my horror, saw that the skin on my fingers was wrinkled and pale, as though I'd spent too long in the bath. As I looked, purple spots appeared before my eyes. I knew exactly what was happening. I was about to faint. And I did. The next thing I knew, I was on the floor, blinking, feeling my complexion turning blue. I wasn't breathing. I, I, was, I was trying to, but I, but I couldn't. I felt like I was drowning, writhing around on the floor, flailing my limbs. Ahead of me, the box was moving. It was spinning, rotating towards me. What? what What was this thing? What had we brought back with us? It was alien. Certainly alien. Wasn't meant to be on this world. It was from another world. I knew that much. After a moment of me weakly crawling towards it, eyes close to popping, brain thumping, the box's window had completely turned to face me. Again, the figure was within its shining metal case. The window was rippling once more. Lee. Lee. Stop messing. Come on. The box began moving towards me. It had no wheels, no engine, or anything that could allow this movement to happen. But it was. It was approaching me. Somehow. Slowly. 
No, I thought. This won't happen again, please. Each time I blinked, my eyes stayed closed slightly longer. It was becoming a struggle to even keep them open. But keep them open I did, and slowly I realised that I recognised the figure inside the box. Red shorts. Yellow polo shirt. It was my swimming teacher from school. Mr. Ralston. Lee, come on. Stop messing around again. And the ripples in the glass. It was the surface of the swimming pool. I knew this vision. I'd seen it before. The box continued getting closer. I could feel my heart pounding in my ears. I lost movement in my arms and legs. My body was beginning to shut down. I was drowning on dry land. And then something grabbed me. The figure's arms exploded through the rippling window and held my wrists tightly. Before I knew it, I was pulled helplessly through the window and into the box. I was inside the box. It was dark, pitch black, but loud, deafeningly loud, echoing. The joins and edges were seamless, as though it were not only a few cubic metres, but rather the size of a sports gym. Lee, come on, come on, open your eyes. The voice was no longer muffled, but crystal clear. I knew I recognised it. It was certainly Mr Ralston. I did as the voice instructed and opened my eyes. It was bright. Overwhelmingly, vividly bright. The box was... This isn't what I expected the box to look like on the inside. I couldn't believe my eyes. How did I get here? I asked, hearing my voice differently inside my head. I sounded younger. Lee, you ought to promise me you're going to stop playing these stupid, stupid games, okay? I looked down. My body was different. Prepubescent. It took me a moment... Beside me, the swimming pool was shimmering, like the window in the box. At the bottom of the pool was a rubber brick. I remembered it all as though it had happened a million times before. This was the moment that I almost drowned while playing in the pool. I'd been here before. Been where before? I'd just been playing games, pretending to be a deep-sea explorer, and the memory of my future was fading. I was here, now, I was, I am, I am eight years old. Lee, Lee, are you okay? You almost drowned. You've got to stop messing around. This is dangerous, you could have died. The other kids huddled around me, peering down to see if I was okay. I looked back into the water. At once, it was no longer a swimming pool, but the murky depths of the Mariana Trench. It had been real. It hadn't been a game. I knew it. I felt alive back then. I felt alive in the water. Not here, not on dry land. This was make-believe. I was having an episode. I knew that I was still on the floor of the warehouse. Had I hit my head? A slow sense of terror covered my body as I realised this had all happened before. I knew how the rest of the story would go. I can feel it. It's like I've read it somewhere. 
And that's why I'm writing it all down. I'm making records because I know this isn't the first time I've seen the box. Out of the abyss we dragged it up, through 30,000 feet of bitter cold Pacific. I was still in shock. What on earth was it? I looked at Jamie, who was the newest member of the crew, our engineer and more of a joker than a serious diver. Jamie was one of those incompetent people who accidentally ended up doing a coveted job. Prick. He was fidgeting. And there was Cheska. We go way back. She's an amazing diver. I feel like I've always known her. In fact, I feel that with Jamie too. It's amazing what being locked in a submarine for 12 hours straight can do to you. It brings you together. A week or so after getting the box onto dry land, Cheska, Jamie and I were in the warehouse, looking at it, wondering what on earth it could be. Jamie was convinced it was alien. I wasn't so sure, but I knew that I'd never seen anything like it. After a moment's pause, Jamie spoke up. Guys, I, um, I've, I, I have something to tell you both. The hairs on the back of my neck stood on end. This was going to be another one of his stupid jokes. I think it's a time machine. I was, a. Uh... I, w- I was in here last night, and I saw something through the window. Okay. Okay, Jamie, come on. Let's get a drink. Cheska said, trying to stem the conversation. I'm not joking. I saw... I saw my dad. Like a, a vision through the window. Like, a- as if he was there. Like, it was a really specific memory from when I was about, um... I don't know how old. Young, anyway. And I nearly drowned in the river by my house. Dad pulled me out. That's what I saw. I furrowed my brow. Something was coming back to me. Come on, Jamie, to the bar. Stop being ridiculous. I'm not. Jamie, I've had enough of your stupid pranks. I know what you're doing. What? You must have overheard me last night. I was on the phone to my sister and telling her about... About what? Oh, shut up. Suddenly, I knew how this would go. It came to me as though it had all happened before. I didn't hear you on the phone. I... I didn't know that the same thing had happened to you. I had no idea that you'd seen something through the window. I promise. Cheska ended the conversation by walking away. I'm going to the bar. Come or don't come, I don't care. There is a pina colada with my name on it. Jamie jogged after her. You coming, Lee? No, I'm going to go do my diary first. Lame. We were all just in shock. Letting the heat get to us, I sat and wrote my diary, as I'm doing now as I have done every day since I almost drowned. It's a compulsion. It's good to write down my memories and keep a journal. I need to remember. If I don't remember, I forget. And then I hear it. Lee, stop messing. I stand up, put my pen down softly and try not to make a noise. Lee. I tiptoe towards the door and peer into the warehouse. I mean it. Lee, Lee. Are you okay? You almost drowned. You've got to stop messing around. This is dangerous. You could have died. The other kids huddled around me, peering down to see if I was okay. I was back at the beginning. I was back at the start of the cycle. I looked down at my prepubescent body, memories of the future already slipping from my mind. I had to hold on to them. I had to write them down. I had to write down what? Out of the abyss we dragged it up, through 30,000 feet of bitter cold Pacific. I was still in shock. What on earth was it? 
some kind of strange box from below. Two days later, I'm in the warehouse having fainted. I'm coming to, lying cold in a heap on the floor. The box was moving towards me, getting closer. I could feel my heart pounding in my ears. I lost movement in my arms and legs. My body was beginning to shut down. I was drowning on dry land and then something grabbed me. The figure's arms exploded through the rippling window and held my wrists tightly. I was inside the box, but the sounds were different, different to what I had expected, louder. What's happening? I said. Something was wrong. My, my voice sounded older, croaky, deep. Can you open your eyes for me, Lee? I blink. It takes effort just to focus. My hands, I know they're mine, but they're wrinkly, as though I've been underwater for too long. Mr. Ralston, I say. The figure meets my gaze with a concerned expression. No, Mrs. Barker. I'm Gary. I'm your nurse. Where are Jamie and Cheska? They're not here, Mrs. Barker. You've told me about them. You worked with them, didn't you? You were a diver. Sounds very cool. I was just with them. They were just here. Time flies, hey, Mrs. Barker? Are we inside the box? It's bigger on the inside than it looks. The joins and edges were seamless. I flex my hands. I had been here before. This has all happened before. I can feel it. It's like I've read it somewhere. And that's why I'm writing it all down. I'm making records, because I know this isn't the first time I've seen the box. The doctors say that it's good to write down my memories and keep a journal. I lie in my bed, looking through the window, watching a bird in the tree outside the home. Each time I blinked, my eyes stayed closed slightly longer. It was becoming a struggle to keep them open. Since I can remember... I've dreamed of sinking slowly into that most inhospitable and mysterious place. I remember a strange feeling that what was meant to be was always meant to be. Out of the abyss we dragged it up, through 30,000 feet of bitter cold Pacific. The Box From Below was voiced by Sophie Cookson, Ashraf Edgebert, Josephine Berry, Arthur McBain, and Owen Jenkins. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, keep your ears peeled because, keep your ears and eyes peeled, because yeah. uh, we've got a few coming up, haven't we? We've sort of done a quite quite intense batch. We and have. They're all due. So we've got, what, what titles can we expect, Arthur, coming up? The Scourge of Little Nazing. Ooh, that sounds good. And we also got a new two-parter. A two-parter, because everyone loved the two-parter last time, and so we've done it again. It's called 
the case. I'm very excited about these episodes. We are recording them all back to back, so mm. that so that hopefully they'll be out very soon. May. May's going to be the month, so mm. keep your ears peeled for at your peril news in May. And while we're at it, we just want to let you know about our social media channels. Uh, you can find us at underscore peril on Instagram and Twitter. Is that our Twitter handle yep. as well? You can also find us on Facebook. Ah, don't worry don't find Facebook. us on Facebook. Don't bother. And you can also email us at yourperilpod at gmail.com. We would always love to hear that from you. That sounded very unsure. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about it. I was. We um, haven't planned this. And uh, yeah, we'll see you next time. Cheers. Lots of love. Bye. <laughs>